Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery. I'm your host, Chris West. Please go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify to subscribe. We need uh, subscribers to progress this podcast in the podcasting world. Go to our website at recovereverything.com for some uh, interactions. Leave a comment, say hello, and follow us on social media at Recover Everything. On this week's episode, we have Dr. Cody Heath. I really enjoyed Dr. Cody Heath. And this conversation was uh, extremely entertaining and informative at the same time. He goes into detail about resiliency, which is a term we all know, but may not fully understand. And I think he kind of sheds a light on what resiliency really is. My co-hosts today are Dr. Sarah Shonian and Caitlin Martinez. Enjoy. she does Sarah. i'm sure that michelle obama does that and she plays with her hair a lot i'm sure she does i know and she has great <laughs> arms we're does. basically the same person but hot hot <laughs> you saying she's hot no i said not well i will oh. I, I will say that i've never seen sarah shonian and michelle obama in the same room at the same time Thank damn you, i feel like i have <laughs> uh, cody do you know a joke um, I, well, I probably know a dad. Yeah, I do. I yeah, do. get a dad joke in there. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> That's like, I don't know if they, it's, it's how we start off Sarah's the interviews. Wonderful. I don't know if Sarah's heard this one before or not, but, um, why, let me, I, I always mess these up. Okay. Why do you have to lean a bicycle? Why? You don't, you know, y'all don't want to guess? Y'all give up? I'm, yeah. I'm just too excited for the punchline. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Because it's too tired. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> too tired. It's, too, it's too great. It's great. Genius. Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Recover Everything Podcast. I'm your host, Chris West. I have both co-hosts today here. Dr. Sarah Shonian. Hello, everybody. And Caitlin Martinez. Hello. And our guest today is... Dr. Cody Heath. Hello. Hi, Cody. Hello, everybody. It's good to be here. Thanks for being Thanks. on our yeah. show. Thank you for ex- well, accepting to do it. Thanks for asking. That's wonderful. We're all mm-hmm. we're all nice to each other. Yes. <laughs> Just a little backstory. Cody and I are very, very good friends. We used to be neighbors, and we went to school together and worked together as colleagues, um, as therapists. Where? At a residential treatment facility for the treatment of substance use disorders. Where, where are you at mm-hmm. right now, Cody? Well, right now I'm in New York State, not in New York City. I've learned that if you say you're in New York, you have to clarify whether or not it's the state. So I'm not in New York City, but in New York State. Where? So, mm-hmm. Well, okay. Um, I'm in Rochester, New York. Um, 
and it's freezing here, so we're getting used to the weather. But I'm here with my partner. Uh, they're currently doing an intern or a postdoc fellowship, and so I'm a clinician for the university. Uh, all the employees have a benefit uh, that's the employee assistance program, and so I work um, for them. Cody, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into this field? Absolutely. So, um, oh, how far back do we go? So, as far uh, back as you want. Yeah. <laughs> Take us all the way back. So, um, I've always known since I was a little kid that I wanted to be a therapist. I didn't know it was called that, but I always knew that I wanted to be in some sort of capacity of helping people. And uh, as I got older, I realized kind of what that was. You know, I, I would see, TV, I would watch TV, and I'd see like, uh, you know, Doctor Fraser Crane on Fraser, and uh, I'd be like, you know, I, I really something about that speaks to me. And then, um, you know, there's certain things now that I don't like that he did, so I kind of deviated <laughs> away from that one uh, a little bit. And then I watched some more TV, and <laughs> I got to know a few more people, and I went to school, and. Uh, I, you know, was debating between psychology and marriage and family therapy to go into grad school. And I remember uh, really deliberating over that. And um, finally, somebody just kind of said, marriage and family therapy teaches you about the whole picture. It teaches you to look at something at, within context and then try to help. Whereas psychology more or less will look at the individual and try to assess for a psychopathology and, and attend to those symptoms to help. And I was like, well, you know, those are both great, but what, which one fits for me? And I thought about my family and my life and how I grew up and uh, marriage and family therapy fit more with me. So I went down that road and I have not looked back since. Mm -hmm. So did my master's there. And then I met Sarah Shonen. We did our PhD together. We, we finished did. that. Um, got a lot of experience clinically and with research and, so I've always known that my, you know, purpose in life was to be helpful. I don't always know what that looks like, uh, but it's just always my goal. That's my role um, overall. And so I have a lot of different interests uh, that help me, you know, on that endeavor. And some of that is like sexual and gender minority, LGBTQIA uh, resilience, particularly youth resilience. Can you, and so, can you explain yeah. what resilience is and what that means? Sure. Um, let me see. I think, the, uh, I think what I like, the definition that I like the most is the ability to bounce back in the face of adversity. I like that too. And so it's the, idea that, uh, it's the idea that we can come back when there is adversity. And everyone has this capacity at one point or another, uh, especially when we're kiddos. So kids actually are very, like, and I'm talking like younger than 10 kids, um, have a very unique ability to be resilient. And if you think about it, they're always smiling, you're always running around. And we've seen and heard about kids who have gone through just awful struggles. And, uh, you know, you, you're likely to see them continue to smile because they're just very resilient. They're able to come back and heal. Even physically, kids are resilient. You know, they have a tonsillectomy, you know, earlier in life. They can recover and be bounced back by the end of the day. Uh, whereas if you're 40, you know, that's kind of a life-threatening surgery. So kids are just really resilient in a lot of ways. As we get older, we deal with a whole lot of adversity, and so it tests that resilience. And we know that it either can make it um, more, uh, it can bolster our resilient, you know, 
skills, and we can use those and uh, thrive and continue to bounce back when we're faced with adversity. And then sometimes that uh, adversity hinders and it starts to tear down those things that make us resilient. And that's what I'm particularly interested in with um, um, sexual and gender minority people is what do we do to inform um, the adversity and what do we do to inform uh, helping people bolster those things that they have as resilience and uh, use that to help them thrive when they become adults. What a... What age group do you think uh, that resiliency starts to diminish? Mm, that's a good question. No, I, I, that is a good question, Chris. I really don't know uh, when that starts to diminish. I think it, it really depends on the adversity that you have it. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, this isn't backed by research necessarily, uh, but just to give you an answer off the top of my head, I would probably say something like when we become teens uh, mm-hmm. in adolescence, I think that a lot gets uh, thrown our way. Uh, in terms of adversity, and we have to really deal with that. So, I mean, like you have um, body image issues, you have bullying, you have, you know, who am I? You have all these complex emotions coming in, and you have all this. (laughs) (laughs) We still have them. Right. So, you know, those really start to test. uh, And we're also starting to see the world is more complex as our brain develops. And so, you know, all of these things uh, equal stress of some sort. And so, uh, you know, that starts to really uh, make, uh, resilience a much more complex thing, you know, in our life. And so I think that that's probably where I would say it. But I mean, that's kind of an obvious answer too. Like the more you know, the less uh, yeah. able you are to heal from it. Right. Like, I mean, knowing is a curse and a blessing sure at the same is. time, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it sure is, mm-hmm. right, there. Yeah. Um, uh, side question. Tell me mm-hmm. something I don't know about Sarah. That you know. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, let me think. Let me think back. Let me think back. Do you know that Sarah obsesses over puzzles? Mm. No, I did not. No, I mean like jigsaw puzzles. Like, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you didn't know that. I'm, I did. You not were know hoping that. for something just a no, little bit more. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I found out how much of a nerd she is just right. right now. Chris is going to assemble a 2,000-piece puzzle and hide four pieces. Right. Yeah. He's, like, he's oh, going to give me a puzzle and hide, and hide one piece. Just one. No, I'm going to take puzzle pieces and then glue them wrong together. Right. That's a really good idea. Cut off some of the end points. Oh, that's horrible. That's the meanest thing I've ever heard before in my life, just so we're clear. <laughs> Back to you. Yeah. Thank you for your beautiful description of resiliency. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, like I said, I think that uh, I have a lot of different interests. So there's that. Um, uh, you also work the, in addiction recovery, yes? Or I, with Well, I, mm-hmm. I do. Um, I do. I have a lot of experience with that. Um, I feel like I have pretty good training with that. Uh, I have personal experience with it as well. Uh, and, you know, right now I do see that along with – right now I have a much more diverse client than just addiction work, uh, but it is still there. And so I'm very thankful and grateful for the things that I know. It's very helpful for my role uh, at this point. Um, so, yeah, that's another interest. Let's uh, let's start off with your personal history with addiction and recovery. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, let's just get right into it. Yeah, oh, so, um, to get into it. Yes. <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to take me out for a drink. <laughs> I got about $12. We yeah. can go get some food. We can get some tacos. Yeah. For real. <laughs> it is Tuesday, right? Am I right? <laughs> this is all working out, you guys. Right. 
No, how let's how get fast can it. you FedEx somebody tacos? <laughs> it's going down. Right. <laughs> so, um, no, I'd be happy to explain. So I, uh, I grew up, there is addiction in my family. More than one member of my family has uh, addiction. Um, and so I like to say that I am a recovering family member of um, addiction, a recovering family member. A lot of people don't really know what that is, even though I think that a whole lot of people can relate to it. Um, so um, I don't really know where to go from there. What else do you want to know, Chris? Well, thank you for using that term, because that's something that Sarah and I use sometimes when we are in spaces um, in the recovery community, because we working in this field, we often get asked, are you in recovery yourself? Mm -hmm. um, and we are both family members in recovery. And right. so sometimes people kind of have questions or give us looks like, what exactly does that mean? So for you, Cody, what does that mean? Hmm. I think that for me, uh, I, I clearly see that addiction is a family, you know, it affects family dynamics. Um, and those dynamics were definitely something that shaped who I am. They're also a lot of what informed you know, my desire to be helpful in the world. Can you give us an example? Uh, sure. So a lot of the times whenever there's addiction in the family, uh, one of the members starts lower functioning. In other words, they're not tending to their responsibilities or uh, they may get in trouble or there may be a whole lot of tension in the room. Addiction has a way of kind of causing this in families, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more the members of the family that maybe are a little bit, uh, well, they're sober, they uh, will start to overfunction to balance out that. And that's, you know, that's fine. That's how families, a beautiful thing that families do. And I mean, we see that with illness. We see that with addiction. We see that with, you know, if somebody's having a stressful time at work. Uh, that's, you know, usually these things tend to themselves and they resolve. So the family is only called to you know, function for that other member or, you know, let things go, so to speak, for just a short period of time. Mm -hmm. But there's only a couple of things in the world, I think, that affect a family for the long term. And addiction is one of them. And it causes a family to need to, to adapt to those stressors and those changes for the long run until that actually becomes the family's functioning, the family's process. So a lot of the times we will see, um, you know, a parent going through addiction. And say it's just one parent going through addiction. The other parent will start to overfunction by making excuses. They'll um, they'll make sure that all the bills are paid. They'll work later hours because maybe their partner is not able to make in a lot of money uh, because the addiction is complicating work. Um, and so that's going to start affecting, you know, if there's kids involved, they're not getting a lot of parent attention from both. And so one of the, you know, the, the parent who's higher functioning is also going to start tending to that. And that's going to put a lot of stress and adversity on that parent. And so sometimes the kids will jump up and start to tend to themselves. Sometimes the kids will meet that. Speaking of adversity, uh, they will, um, you know, a part of them that is resilient might be a part of them that is a very responsible person. And so they'll be called to, you know, hold that responsibility over their brothers and sisters and maybe, you know, take a little bit of pressure off of one of the parents that are functioning or the other parents that's not. And 
over time, that can uh, become who, how they see themselves. That can become problematic. That can become real tied in with their self-esteem. And that can t- be tied in with how they manage anxiety. Mm-hmm. So it starts off as a very good thing, a very resilient, honorable thing. Families are amazing in the way that they can adapt. But addiction is one of the things that the more we try to adapt to it, the more it uh, extorts the adaption to facilitate itself. In other words, the more that uh, it starts to use that as an enabling to uh, continue itself. You know, oh, mm-hmm. everyone's taking care of things in my family. I don't have to, you know, worry about whether or not the kids are going to sleep. I don't have to worry about having a job. This is all the addiction talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I uh, might as well, you know, I don't have any excuse now to um, have to recover. And that's all the addiction, not the, not the person talking. The person actually with the addiction is going through a hell. Right. Uh, but the addiction sees that as an opportunity, uh, and it, it extorts that um, over-functioning of the family, and it kind of traps everybody in. It traps everybody into doing the same thing over and over and over. The addiction gets worse. Everyone's trying the best they can to make things better, and the tension, the stress, and the chaos just gets worse. But it does so, so slowly that no one really realizes it until it's, you know, really, really bad. And so whenever I say that my addiction or my family's addiction informed who I am, there was no other choice. I, mm-hmm. We all grow up in the way that we are, but that doesn't have to be a bad thing. Um, the way you know, de- we all do what we can. The mm-hmm. way you're describing addiction in that, in that situation is almost like it's an apex predator. Right. Uh, like uh, it's just right, well, highly you know, adaptive yeah. mm-hmm. without, right. uh, without a cure. Right. So, yeah. Cody, those patterns, I think it's really important that you mentioned that there's only a few things that really push the family dynamics in such a way that it, um, it continues in that pattern, um, and pushes the family towards that, that like kind of homeostasis. Because I think a lot of people who, I don't know, grew up in families with addiction or have a spouse that's struggling with addiction, they kind of, I don't know, it, it, it's really uncomfortable. It's painful, but they don't recognize like um, how strong those patterns are and how difficult they are to get out of and heal from. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's a very difficult thing to get out of and heal from, particularly if you're a partner. I think that kids have it, you know, really bad. But you know, and every family is different how they do this. If you really want to get down to it, the patterns are similar, but everyone's just a little different. But you know, I think that partners have a very uniquely difficult time. But I also think that parents of a child have a very uniquely different time as well. So, I mean, break your eye, Caitlin. Breaking these patterns is just so difficult and they can be painful on its own. Yeah. What do you see more often, uh, children with the addiction or parents? Hmm. Hmm. You mean my clinical work? Or? Yeah. I mean, whenever Sarah uh-huh. and I worked at the residential treatment center, um, it's kind of a, you know, we saw both. both. I, I think that we saw a fair amount of both. Do you, do you, um, t- you attack differently mm-hmm. in the, in those situations? Uh, I'd, li- I'd like to think that we do, but yeah. I don't think that it looks that way all the time. Okay. Why, why is that? You want to speak to that, sir? I think that, um, I mean, I, I think that you're spot on when you say that it should be treated differently, but that it doesn't happen like that all the time. I think that people think it's the same kind of thing for a parent as it would be for a partner. Um, and I think that the the patterns look differently, you know, like ki- parents can hide it better. Um, like from their kids. Yeah. 
Mm, no, I think kids are really perceptive of what's going on, but they may not know the specifics of it. Fair enough. And then they kind of maybe mirror the other develop resiliency or start to mirror whatever the other person without the addiction is maybe doing or the other way around. But mm -hmm. then also considering the genetic factor too and thinking about um, how parents often pass on these genes to their children and there's nothing they can do about that. It's mm -hmm. just kind of gets really convoluted at that point. Absolutely. I mean, I think to really just kind of answer the question, Chris, I, it, you know, it, addiction in and of itself, as far as all the clients that I would, if I opened my client, my practice up to every single client situation that I could see, I wouldn't see a whole lot of addiction for one reason or the other. People don't come in or it's just, you know, it, it, it is indeed rare, you know, in some ways compared to everything else. However, this is what I would say. And it's the same thing whenever I talk about like um, self-harm or suicide or uh, it may not happen as much as other things, but it happens way too much. Uh, what do you see most often uh, with clients coming in? I mean, a lot of stress, a lot of um, adjustments. Um, I see a lot of people who are basically repeating the same, you know, behaviors that uh, used to get them out of a lot of stress or it used to be really functional for them when they were younger, but it just kind of got outdated and the ways that they go about trying to manage their world now is uh, it's not working as well and they just beat themselves up as to why instead of um, questioning that and adapting. It's just a very hard thing. And that's what I like about addictions, just to kind of tie them both back in. I see these patterns because that's how and how I'm trained to do it. And, I mean, and I've been trained to do it so much so that that's just how I see the world with patterns and family systems and everything is in a context. Um, and the something that addiction work has really helped me with is uh, I think that everyone should be trained in addictions in one way mm -hmm. if they want to. If they want to be a really good therapist, I think that everyone should be trained because addiction has a way of taking a – magnifying glass to the patterns you're going to see with every other client and mm -hmm. magnifying them so much that you see them very, very clearly. Now with addiction, they're a little harder to break, I think, than some, with some other, um, you know, things that can bring people into the therapy room. Cody, but what, yeah, what I agree with you wholeheartedly. What was the transition? I kind of say this laughingly a little bit, not to minimize the normals problems or people not living with addiction, oh, yeah. but oh, I, it's yeah. such a funny transition from working with couples and families with addiction and then working with a quote unquote, like normal couple with like a communication problem or something like that. And it's almost like, what's that experience like for you? I'm just wondering. Oh, the transition back. Yeah. Well, and, and you're right. I'm glad it's like that you a cakewalk, stopped me there. You know? <laughs> not at all. No. And I'm glad that you, um, that you stopped because I would hate to, uh, minimize anybody else's oh, issues no. coming in if they're not addiction. Yeah. That's you, definitely not no, what I'm trying to say. You weren't. I yes. did. <laughs> As usual. Well, you would um, never. I, <laughs> I can definitely see similar yeah. speech patterns from both of you. Oh, <laughs> I think I you? take on Sarah's speech. I don't know. It's just something about her. Mm. We all want to be Sarah Schoen. Yeah. Like, I love you, Cody. Speak for yourself. <laughs> no, to answer your question, the transition back, like I have to adjust my style, really, mm -hmm. to, if I'm just going to be real with you. Uh, I have to adjust my style. Uh, with addiction, I can be very straightforward um, because people, I don't know, there's just something about my style and how I'm comfortable with uh, that. And I think that people can relate to me in a way that I can just be pretty blunt and straightforward most of the time, not every time. 
Uh, whereas with a couple in, in them coming in, I can't be as transparent about things for some reason. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to be a little bit more gentle with it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it could also be, Sarah, that uh, people, by the time they reach out for help and see me in the room with addiction, they've been through a whole lot of other stuff and probably a whole lot of other services. And so they can kind of hear some of the harsher things a little bit easier because they've heard it before. Whereas somebody who's coming in as a couple, they're probably really distressed between the two of them, but have never really invited anyone in. Uh, So that, you know, they may be in different places that way. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I have to adjust my style with that sort of stuff and, um, and just kind of help in a different way, but in a, in in an equally um, passionate way. Right. Can we, can we talk about more about resilience? (laughs) Sure. You really like that one, huh, Chris? I do. Uh, yeah. Just from personal um, resiliency as a child. <laughs> personal resiliency. Mm-hmm. Explain to me again uh, what what resilience in in this uh, context context means. So, it, to clarify, do you mean fam- mm-hmm. like in families with addiction, or talking about children in families with addiction? Are I mean, just the word resilience oh, in general, okay. just the ability to deal with things. Is what in bounce back? I mean, that's mm-hmm. this is what we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's important because I think that's one way that we adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's how we call upon our resources. So, I mean, we can't be resilient solely alone. Um, mm-hmm. It takes a village, so to speak. So, um, is it something you're born? Some with? of the resilience. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it's. I think that it can be informed with the things that you're born with, but I think that it's also informed with the environment in which you're in, because you call it the resources that you have available to you. You know, is a huge, huge thing that makes us resilient. And so, I mean, you're not born with the, you know, people around you in terms of a community. So that's something that's afterwards. Um, as far as temperament, being able to handle stress and regulate your own emotion, uh, that that you may there may be a lot more genetic factors into that. So that's going to, you know, go into whether or not someone's uh, that much more resilient if they have those, you know, genetic factors. Can a person Does be that can a person mm-hmm. be uh, resilient without any uh, conflict? Do you need conflict to become more resilient? Oh, mm. oh. that is a that is a sophisticated question, Chris. That, yeah. <laughs> so a little fist I, pump. <laughs> there's a part in my dissertation that I wrote about. Um, I think that a lot of places define resilience as a reaction or as. Um, something that happens after stress. So it's highlighted by the stress uh, that someone goes through, or the adversity rather. Um, So I think that you can inherently be resilient. That's not what I don't think you're asking. Um, But I think that resilience is demonstrated afterwards, after the adversity comes. And then the adversity, you know, either brings out that internal resilience that you have, or it helps you grow the external resilience that you need, like the external uh, uh, resources like family, community, uh, spiritual resources, groups that you might want to attend, friends that you gain, um, and that kind of stuff. That would be the external things that you would pull upon. And, re- and having adversity can actually help you gather that stuff, uh, which is beneficial. So there's another part to kind of help you with this, too. Um, at the end of my dissertation, we realized that, and this is not anything new, people with more adversity uh, struggle more in life. Um, you know, uh, people, for instance, sexual minority uh, people have more instances with um, 
they're just overrepresented with like mental illness and that sort of a thing. And that is not to say, and this was the biggest part of my dissertation that I wanted to make so clear. That is not to say that those risk factors are inherent to at-risk populations. It just means that at-risk populations face more adversity that has made it that much more difficult to rise and bounce back. It doesn't mean they're less resilient. Mm-hmm. It means they just had more adversity. By um, adversity, you mean um, poor neighborhoods or? Sure, sure. Uh, um, literally anything? Any kind of stressors? Literally any kind of stressors. Yeah. Um, I would like to be more specific, but, you know, if I stay with what I know, then that would be like bullying. Okay. Um, that would be like not conforming. And so you don't feel yourself as represented in media. You know, that's kind of an adverse thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh you know, uh, because that's going to develop, that's going to help develop, you know, how you see yourself. So more adversity does, you know, more adversity can bring about more resilience, Sure, but more, more adversity, even more so makes it just that much more difficult, uh, to continue being resilient. It mm-hmm. beats you down. Mm-hmm. So there comes, there's becomes a point where too much adversity is too much to, Bounce back, bounce from. back from, and therefore That's you might right. you might have things like mental illness present itself. That's I can, right. I kind of see it as like somebody lifting weights. Like you can lift a bunch of weights and get strong, but if you lift too much weights, you're going to break your arm, and you're not coming back from that. Right. We all have I that like, breaking. I like weight. how you put that. Mm-hmm. Well, in that way too, resilience is a muscle thing that can be grown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that, Chris. No, that's a really good. Uh, you can keep really that. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I'll always um, say that it was. It came from you. I don't need the credit. Um, oh, yeah. So, so are there factors that um, kind of lead a person to become more resilient? There are definitely things that we know are um, highly associated with resilience. So, there's a lot of research done about trying to inform for for um, adolescents. Uh, there's a lot of uh, trying to get, you know, affirmations for minority populations. So helping people feel like they're represented, helping people people feel like their voice is also just as important as everyone else's, helping them feel very validated in their identity, whether that's cultural or sexual or gender. Um, And that helps. So another thing, too, is to have peer groups. So Mm -hmm. a lot of social support is extremely important. And you see that in a lot of other mental health efforts because there's a, just a huge ability for social groups coming together in a healthy way that just helps someone heal. Uh, so that can tend to, that can add to resilience. Go ahead, Chris. I'm going to ask a very weird question. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Me being a white male, right. Who is constantly mm-hmm. represented in the media and whatnot. Uh, I don't, it's not that I don't empathize. I don't understand the feeling of not being represented. I'm just curious on why that is so, such an important thing for people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. Um, I, I think I can only answer you personally. So please. please. Um, yeah. Um, so I identify as gay uh, and I live a same sex, you know, partnered lifestyle. Right. And so I was born gay. It's always that way. And then I have the lifestyle with my part. It makes me very, very happy. It's very congruent with how I see myself. So growing up, there was not a lot of 
same-sex relationships uh, represented on TV, and there was not hardly any um, gay, openly gay characters. But the ones that I did see that were always hinted as gay, they were always bullied. They were always treated uh, very unkindly. And uh, they were also, um, they were, you know, evil. They were the villain or they were represented as um, someone who was funny and to laugh at and ridiculous and flamboyant and, um, you know, not intelligent. That's how that was always represented, because at the time, I think that's how society could handle that sort of a thing. So I grew up and in my, you know, young mind, that is what I have to pull on to form my identity. You know, whenever I become a, a teenager or a little bit later and I'm like, who am I? What is available to me? What has been shown to me that I can kind of demonstrate myself and express myself as? And when those things are limited, it's just a little bit harder of a journey to find. And in the meantime, if you're getting bullied, which I really wasn't, I, I had a very nice childhood in that way. But if you're being bullied on top of already having these insecurities, uh, that's going to cause more adversity, right? Mm -hmm. So that it's those kinds of things that, you know, if you've been represented in the media and you're not bullied, you don't have to deal with those things. And that's wonderful. Good for everyone that doesn't have to. Um, and it's just that much more hard mm -hmm. for people that do. I think about that example too, of like developing resiliency in families with addiction. Sarah's bringing it back to addiction. Well, no, but there's that woman that wrote about the kids developing resiliency when they're a child living in a family with addiction. And she talks about mm -hmm. how it, it takes a lot to build resiliency. And a lot of times kids will turn to away from their family into like books or the media or like movie watching or something to develop role models and guidance. And so, you know, like if you don't have that as a sexual minority, then that I think creates um, another roadblock too, you know? That's right. I, I guess I just didn't realize how much I take from movies and, and how it informed my who I how I view myself which is mainly like Batman <laughs> but, right Cody I love Batman, Batman too I uh, love Batman me too well that's great Chris I'm but, glad, uh, I mean that's wonderful for you I think it yeah. just kind of clicked in my head it's like oh yeah totally there's not a lot of at least there weren't do you think that's changed now in the future or do you think you're what more well represented in oh much more much more and, you know, to be honest, too, Chris, I'm sure that there was a ton of information out there that was available to me. But uh, the way that I grew up, you didn't have cable. Also, no, hidden. Just... <laughs> <laughs> um, it was hidden from me in some mm -hmm. ways um, because it wasn't OK to watch that or that's not something my family wanted to watch. And so therefore, I might not be exposed to it. And so, you know, it, to answer your to answer your question. I think that it's gotten a whole lot better. I'm not saying that it was just absolutely awful when I was younger. It just. Uh, you know, I, there's just a lot of things in the way that I didn't get exposed to it or it wasn't there. But nowadays, I think that it's a lot better. Uh, the question still remains, are kids exposed to that? And uh, are they allowed to see it? How are they allowed to think about it and process it? That kind of thing. But it has gotten a lot better. I mean, I think that they're trying to come out with a gay superhero, which I think is great. Um, yeah. That leads me to um, my next question yeah. that I was thinking about before mm -hmm. you said that. What about taking classic characters and changing certain things about them, like making Superman gay hmm. or making Superman African-American? Mm -hmm. uh, right. Is this happening? Are they, there are I'm talks about this on the Internet. I'm a huge comic book nerd. So this mm -hmm. thing, the, these things go around. Nothing's ever going to change classic Superman. Mm -hmm. But I'm just curious right. on your thoughts on, on, on something like that being uh, a gay man. Would, oh, would you be yeah, excited like if, if some, Superman was all of a sudden gay? 
or <laughs> would that bother you that uh, they're kind of like trying to force something like that or like I don't, I'm just curious I'm uh, sorry <laughs> no that's great I love your curiosity I'll, I'll just answer as honestly as I can and I, I, I don't really know how I would feel that I don't really have an opinion on that one way or the other if they were going to make Superman gay I'd be all for it but I can understand <laughs> that some people would be like you know that's 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 against canon and that's not how it's supposed to be. And we're, you know, I can understand that like being a debate, you know, I really don't have a stance in that debate. If they want to make Superman gay, I'm all for it. I'll be at his wedding, you know, whatever. (laughs) I love that so much. I'm just like sitting here envisioning the wedding in my head of what that would actually look like and like Uh what you'd be wearing and what Superman would be. And I, I'm a huge Batman fan. Mm -hmm. Love Batman. So if, if I could choose, my superhero to be gay, I would want it to be Batman so that we could talk about it. Oh, Fair yeah. enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I go with that too. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking like that. I have ridiculous questions sometimes. Batman's a car guy. Cody's no, also a, Cody's a car guy too. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I do enjoy my cars very much so. I was going to give a car uh, metaphor not too long. Or, well, I'll just go ahead and give it. Mm-hmm. So I like Camaro. Uh, Chevrolet Camaro is my thing. I love them. I've, I've owned many of them. I've worked on them. I enjoy mm-hmm. them very much. And uh, I often will say, you know, in my therapy practice, um, we and Sarah, I think that you'll agree to this. Please say if you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, we see the same patterns. At least we recognize these as patterns. Um, we see them over and over and over. But that doesn't mean that nothing is unique, and that doesn't mean that people aren't, you know, special and uh, um, go through unique things on their own. And those things should be celebrated. Those things should be acknowledged. And so I, I liken it to. I know Camaro. I know every year of the Camaros. I know the different things that make those years. And if I went to a car show, I would see 20 Camaros. Mm -hmm. They're all the same because Mm -hmm. they're all Camaros. Right. Um, But I would still go to that car show and I would still look at each and every one of those, even though it's the same car, because they are all different in little unique ways that make them very, very interesting and make them very, very nice to be around and fun to, you know, look at. Yeah. What's your thoughts on so the DeLorean? Kind of like that. <laughs> I get it. The DeLorean. <laughs> I like the DeLorean because of the the movie. That, mm-hmm. That's that's and I. But the DeLorean itself as a vehicle, um, I think that it was severely underpowered and poorly made. <laughs> <laughs> but I would love card. to own one. <laughs> right. Yeah, I would love to own one. I, I when I see them, I love looking at them. Um, I appreciate the ingenuity with the stainless steel body and um, I think that he you was and really Sarah going are definitely friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine what it was like with Cody and I just sitting around talking about this kind of stuff for hours? <laughs> I could probably bring a pizza and leave you guys in a room for two hours. And come back and we're still talking about yeah. pizza? Yeah, it's, that's exactly how it goes. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, oh, I love that. I love that. I'm I curious, that. Cody, if uh-huh. um, Growing up or living in a family with addiction informed your decision to become a therapist? It did. It did. It very much did. So when we're growing up, and remember I told you uh, the way that you function in your family, it has a huge bearing on how you see yourself and your Mm self-esteem. You know, we see ourselves as funny or we see ourselves as helpful or we see ourselves as, oh, I don't know. What's the other one, Sarah? Um, funny, the protector. Helpful. Yeah, uh, the protector. Yeah, good you, one. You go Chris. away. You get out of the way. Right. Or mm-hmm. yeah. Or we see ourselves as needing to kind of get back and either not make things worse or uh, get back and we don't mm-hmm. when we get anxious, right? Or when we get anxious, we do other things, right? So I right. mean, we see ourselves in that way. So I grew up in a few different ways, and um, you know, I balanced that out with my other family members, and so I, I began to see myself as uh, liking myself when I was helpful. 
Mm-hmm. I, I really have a huge um, way of seeing myself as helpful and, and how that informs uh, my self-esteem. So this is a good thing because it motivates me to want to go into grad school and be helpful for the world. However, um, as with most things, there is a balance to be struck. Um, and addiction knows no balance. Um, and that is true with uh, every other member, I think, that lives through that. Um, because I saw myself as helpful, therefore I need to be helpful. But that's not balance. Um, I had to struggle a whole lot with, yeah, but Cody, there's a lot of things that you can't change. There's a lot of clients that aren't ready to hear the things that you have to. And if they don't change in the way you see them that they need to in order for you to be you know, demonstrating helpfulness, what is that going to mean about you? And so I put that off and I put that off and I continued to train as a therapist and was very happy with the clients that got well. And I was very disappointed in myself with the clients that I didn't think made as much improvement as they could have. And uh, that began to really, really bother me and really, really burn me out as a therapist. Yeah, that'll do it. Because it, yeah, that'll do it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, my ability as uh, being a good person came down to whether or not my clients got better. And that is a very dangerous Sounds like it. Uh, place to put. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a very dangerous, very scary. It's a very uncertain place to put my self-esteem. Um, and that's going to you know, motivate me to want to either try harder or to do something different. So I was lucky enough to be surrounded by amazing people, Sarah Shoney being one of them. Do you still and, do that with clients? Yeah, I think that I still struggle with some. I think I always will. That's part of my recovery. My, I have an ongoing journey of recovery. Um, I don't. I'm not sure if it is the as severe as what other people have to go through. You know, I'm not saying that it's the. You know that oh poor me, I have to go through this sort of a thing. Uh, I think that I have it relatively easy, especially compared to a lot of members of my family um, who are not in New York state, who are back Mm -hmm. home. Um, I think that I have a fortunate for me, I have it very easy and it's because of them that I do. And I'm very grateful for them for that. But yeah, I still do struggle with that. Um, particularly when I'm tired, particularly when I'm hungry, particularly when I'm lonely, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my self-esteem wants to be assuaged. My, uh, me feeling joy, it wants to fill that in a way of like, Cody, be super helpful for somebody and do it, uh, for selfish reasons. And that, you know, me resisting that and doing things, because I want to be helpful because it's within my values to see people do well, not because of who I am, but because I'm a human being and that's my value. That's my recovery journey. And yeah, I still struggle with that um, every once in a while, but I'd like to think that I am, um, I am still in recovery and I'd like to think that I live a recovery lifestyle in order to be helpful for people. You're going to feel crap. Yeah. You're going to feel real crap. Mm -hmm. Or you're going to feel real happy every once in a while, but it will be for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say that this reminds me of one of those nice conversations that I had with Dr. Sarah Shoning a long time ago. Um, When we were working with families, you know, I I had, by the time we began working with families, I was well into my recovery journey. Thank goodness, Mm -hmm. because I would have just been awful. I just would not have been a good therapist without that. Uh, So anyway, I was well within it and practicing ethically. And so uh, I had a conversation with Sarah about, I noticed that everyone has the best of intentions in their families. They have the best of intentions, but particularly parents with their child, uh, they're happy only when their child is happy. And there's not a lot of lie to that. I think that that's true without addiction being present. But where I think it differs, and I'll, I'll come back to my point, is that like I was 
placing my worth and value as a human as to whether or not I was helpful as a therapist based on people's progress. You know, that's a roller coaster. If they do right. well, I'm going to feel good. If they don't do well, I'm going to hit on myself. I'm going to hit on myself. Beat on yourself, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to beat up on myself mm-hmm. and have horrible esteem, right? Right. Uh, and I think that parents tend to do that when they're, particularly when their child is struggling, but especially when their child has an addiction, because mm-hmm. the parent has to contend with a whole lot of, you know, things uh, with what that means. And so if they're putting their identity into whether or not their child is doing well, mm-hmm. I hope that your child does extremely well because. Because if they don't, you're going to struggle on a significant level. And my heart goes out to people who do that. And because I, I, I only know what that feels like for me to a client. Can I imagine if that was my child? Right. No, I can't. Right. You know, that's awful. So I remember having a conversation with Sarah about this. And I was like, you know, I, I, I have extreme compassion uh, for someone struggling at that level. But what I have an issue with is that if I, as a therapist, I'm not going to speak for families and parents, uh, that wouldn't be right right now, but if I, as a clinician, only sought to help people because it would make me feel better on some level, Mm -hmm. that's great, and my efforts are great, and I can say my intentions are great, but truly, truly, if I really get down to it, I'm being selfish, you know? You remember that conversation, Sarah? Yeah, we've we've had that conversation many, many times, and I think a lot of times we help others because we want to see some sort of outcome, and then we have mm-hmm. expectations and it makes us feel good. It's not a, a selfless act of giving. Right. It's manipulative. It is. It is manipulative. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I mean, but it really is. Like, and we see this it's all the, the time truth. with people, especially, especially with like families with addiction. the best terrible people ever. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, the nicest, most horrible people. But just for clarification too, Cody, when you say you live a recovery lifestyle and you're a family member in recovery, it means that you're on your own recovery journey, not because you were living with a substance use disorder, but because you right. lived in a family with addiction and your um, your recovery is just as important as the person living with a substance use disorder. Absolutely. And thank you for clarifying, punctuating those mm-hmm. things. It's super important for me to express. Um, yeah, it's because of the effects that I had growing up with how addiction affects families that I choose to recover mm-hmm. um, and doing, you know, my family members that are in recovery, they being in recovery, it enhances my life right. on an amazing level that I never thought that I ever was going to have. And it's sometimes I never thought I would have needed as much as I do. And I'm very grateful. And I would like to think that on some level, my recovery enhances theirs. And I can't speak for them, mm-hmm. but I would like to think that with a family that is in recovery together, possibilities are endless. Yeah, systemically it does, right? Absolutely. <laughs> my recovery looks like, a little bit. You sound like jerky <laughs> academics, you know? Like. Um, <laughs> where, does Al-Anon come, in, come into this at all? Oh, the 12 steps. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you said that because I was going to say that my recovery, you know, it looks probably a little different. And for me, you know, it's probably a little different than other family members need to, to, to recover. And I respect other people's journeys. And so, you know, I, I want to make sure that whenever I'm giving, I always second guess myself. Um, I try to give anonymously. Mm-hmm. Um, if, um, you know, and I try to give things that I can afford to give. Yeah. I don't want to give desperately. I don't want to give with expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a really big part of my recovery. Honesty is a huge part of my recovery. A lot of the times, the way that I grew up, a particular thing that I struggle with is 
saying things to make someone smile or saying things mm-hmm. because they're the right thing to say, the nice thing to say. Right. So a big part of my recovery is, is this true for me? Um, and sometimes I need to pause people and tell them, you know, if they're asking for something or if they're needing something, you know, I need to pause and let them know, hold on real quick. Uh, and, and in my head, I'm trying to think, am I trying to make this person feel better uh, just because, or am I trying to say something honest to this person and just letting however they react, let them react however they need to. And so I really try to align those things and it's a constant struggle, you know, but that those are something spirituality is a huge piece to my um recovery as well because uh, I need to get outside of myself being mm-hmm. selfish and growing up in a way of thinking that I can save the world is very very selfish and damning for me so connecting with my higher power uh, the way that I see them is very important to me to humble me so those are just some examples I didn't realize Elanon was 12 step oh well, yeah Elanon's super oh, 12 yeah. step I didn't, I didn't even answer your Elanon I'm sorry Chris I didn't even <laughs> I just thought it was, I, I just thought it was I, therapy that people went to if their family was in was in addiction, yeah, Alanon's twelve step. I did not know that. Yeah. yeah, they have their own little. They have their own kind of adapted twelve steps. There, I'm a very, I'm a proponent of Alanon. I think that some meetings are better than others, um, and that's just the truth with anything else. Yeah, you know, I'm glad I can be honest like that. Yeah, that's but, that's uh, the point. Yeah, honest discussions <laughs> right. about recovery. It's kind of scary that's sometimes right. to think about because, um, like the. I think that behaviors are so insidious a lot and it's what, what behaviors in Al-Anon meetings. Sometimes it's wow. those what? things. Examples? Tell us more, Sarah. Those things. Say it, Sarah. I think that sometimes, um, you know, structure is good. The social support aspect is good. Um, but the, just spit it out. Well, I'm having a hard time. I, I think it's sometimes, dangerous because it turns into a a venting session instead of something that's Mm -hmm. productive. And so you have to go internal. You can't sit there and talk about your child or your partner and what they need to do and how, you know, it's, you can't, you can't vent. Right. Well, let me, can I add to it? Cause I know yeah. we've talked about this many times, many times and we've seen it. We, I think that Sarah and I has seen good mm-hmm. constructive Al-Anon type meetings and uh, not so good ones. Right. Um, despite everyone's best of intentions. So mm-hmm. I think what you're trying to say, there's a difference between commiserating and venting uh, for recovery. Right. Right. So commiserating is getting together and being validated with the fact that someone treated or someone had an exchange with you or someone did something that was crappy to you. And you're like, yeah, you're right. You know, let's uh, victimize myself and demonize them because that is a way of feeling better. I mean, we mm-hmm. all need that every once in a while. We Sometimes I call ally. Sarah and I'm like, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm like, Sarah, just just tell me I'm right for mm-hmm. just a second because I just need to win one today, you know, and that's fine. Uh, but if you have a practice of doing that now and on meeting over and over and over and over, all of a sudden the structure of your group is, you know, a he Al-Anon's addiction haters club kind right. of thing. And uh, that's not helpful. It's not in the spirit of Al-Anon. It's not, you know, recognizing the steps. It's um, it's just commiserating, which can be helpful, but it's just not the goal of an Al-Anon meeting in my opinion. Is that what you're trying to say, Sarah? Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Cody always makes things sound much, much nicer than I ever could. Well, you always make them sound succinct and beautiful. So oh, thank my you. gosh. Thank you. When? <laughs> when does this happen? 
Do you have to know her for a certain amount of time? I don't know. I just always thought of Sarah just saying things very just... First of all. <laughs> um, I want to get back to your dissertation. Oh, oh gosh. Do we have to? Yeah. No, that's fine. I'll talk, talk about, to you about it. Talk about adversity. <laughs> uh, can you tell me what your, like a rundown of what your dissertation is about? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't mind doing that. Um, so when you do a dissertation, when you finish it, you kind of block it out of your head. So it's a little Forever. fuzzy as a specific title. Uh, but no, what it was about, uh, I wanted to look at resilience levels uh, compared to when someone has come out and how many people they'd come out to. So if they'd come out to one group versus more than one group and groups being, you know, you came out to your parents or you came out to your siblings, or you came out to your family or you came out to your family and work, right? Mm-hmm that would be a different group of coming out. All those are different layers of groups. So I wanted to look at how many groups had people come out to and what was their resilience? In other words, you know, on a scale of, I don't know, zero to 40, 40 being the highest, what was the scale of resilience? Were they high in resilience? Were they low in resilience? And then I wanted to see what the effect that family support had on those levels of resilience. Okay. So what I ended up finding was something like, you're going to have to edit all of this out. <laughs> what I ended up finding was for those sexual minority youth, so this is um, 12 to 18 years old, everyone was out on some level in my sample. Everyone was out to at least parents or at least out to one group. Uh, and some of them were out to more than one group or everyone. And for those who were out to everyone, they had pretty good resilience. Uh, they had pretty high resilience, which we would expect to see. If you're out to more than people, you know, you probably have a pretty good identity with your new self. You probably have pretty good group support. You're probably going to endorse a lot of it or a lot more anxiety otherwise. Mm-hmm. So for those who were not out to everyone, they did have lower. However, for those who had family support and were out to everyone, they did not have significantly higher levels of resilience than those who were only out to one group. In other words, if you were out to everyone, but you did not have family support, then you did not receive the same benefits of being out that those group who had high family support did. Hmm. It's so crazy. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't, I guess I don't understand resiliency in this scenario. Meaning, so that, that's fair. Yeah, I didn't really explain in this scenario. So the way that I looked at resilience in my study was that I, I utilized the Search Institute's uh, 40 developmental assets. The more assets that you endorse, and these things could include internal and external factors, internal factors being uh, what do you do with your uh, free time? Are you positive? Are you productive in your free time? Uh, do you have, what is your self-esteem like? What do you, do you um, do the right thing when no one's looking? Those would be kind of internal things. Whereas external things would be like, do you understand the roles in your school? Do you feel safe when you go home? Do you have people outside of your family that you feel safe being around? Um, are your friends positive? Do you feel like they're a good influence on you? These would be external. So you combine these internal and external things and uh, you give this questionnaire to youth. And that's what I did. And you say, how many of the, yes, no, maybe on all of these things, you know, and it would say things like that. They so, would ask those questions about resilience for those who endorsed a certain number of those things uh, would score, they would give you a score. And that score depended on how resilient you were. So those with a score of, you know, I don't know, I can't remember the exact cutoff, but it was like 
25 and up were more likely to go on into college or not drop out. They were more likely to resist um, uh, um, risky drug use or drug use, you know, period when they were a minor. Those who endorsed a low score uh, were more likely to drop out of high school. They were more likely to um, struggle legally. They were more likely to not go on to higher education, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. That's how we did. That's how we um, talked about uh, uh, resilience. So resiliency is almost like a, another term for success in this. No, I think that they're they're together. I think that resilience is demonstrated mm-hmm. through okay. the success, but but it's also a more likely thing. And how the Search Institute came up with that is is pretty brilliant, I think. But resilience in this way is, you know, tied very much with these a- these assets. And they had to they had to you know take this measure and test all of these assets as to whether or not that the people who went on to demonstrate resilience, you know. Uh, had these assets, and those that did, that's how they made the measure, more or less. And you're, what you're speaking to, though, Chris, you're exactly right. Uh, the way that we talked about resilience beforehand, you know, when we began this, mm-hmm. is different than the way the Search yeah, Institute I'm demonstrates it. Yeah, because it's really difficult to dem- to say, you know, that person. It's really difficult to test resilience because you don't want to put somebody through adversity. Right. And so, uh, you know, I can't put all of my sample through adversity. And so uh, to, in order to test whether or not they are resilient, but we can get pretty close to saying these things are tied very closely to resilience. So this is a useful way of demonstrating that uh, th- of what we call resilience. From what you said before and, and, and this definition of resilience, what you're pretty much were describing is that if you had more family involvement when you came out, you were more likely to be resilient. Yes, more or less. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, you you demonstrated it. Go ahead, sir. I, I think that family support is really, really important. And people don't realize how much family support or acceptance, I guess, is valuable, maybe. Right. It is. <laughs> I was like, Extremely valuable. Silence. I was like, <laughs> no one agrees. Yeah, and crickets, crickets. Were there a lot of, were there any anomalies where you would interview somebody who would come out, have no family support, but be super resilient? You know, that's a, I just love you. You think like a researcher, Chris. Um, Thank Sarah, you. Sarah, time to stand up for a PhD program. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm kidding, Chris. Don't do it. Yeah, don't do it. Um, I never will. If you care about yourself, don't do stay it. Stay brilliant. Stay, yeah. stay gold, pony boy, you know. Yeah. Stay, stay golden. <laughs> I just dyed my hair, by the way. Was it, is it golden? It kind of. It's blue. It was. It's not even close to being golden. It was. It was. <laughs> And I thought of Pony Boy and Ralph Macchio when I did it. Cody, what's your favorite That's color? Right. Blue. Blue. Duh. Mm-hmm. You and Chris have a lot in common. Oh, we do. We like that Batman in that blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we should be friends. Right. We should be friends. We are friends. Mm-hmm. Chris. You basically are now. Um, what was the question? Um, Were there any yeah, anomalies? Uh, yes. Yeah, no, you know what? Uh, I think that there were, to Didn't be honest, drop I, from I the don't study. remember. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's kind of yeah. what happened. All outliers um, were kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So, and also, I didn't sit down and interview people. Um, I, I administered these, uh, 
I had to collect a lot of people because I had a fair amount of variables. And so in order to do that efficiently, I needed to have an online survey. So I directed people, you know, within a population to an online survey. And that's how I got my data. I've done a few so of these online to, surveys mm-hmm. for I'll college. Ex- I'll explain yeah. the difference between quantitative and qualitative research later. That's it for another show. Were, you know? were most right. of the folks that completed your survey. survey from Texas or were they from all over? I think that most of them were from Texas. Some of them didn't say where they were from, um, but there were a few that were, um, you know, from all over. I think that we had some, I think we had a couple, it wouldn't be significant, but we had a couple that were from uh, the UK, perhaps. Oh, interesting. I asked because was, I, I yeah. would imagine being an adolescent who is from a sexual minority living in Texas might be very different from someone's experience being in Southern California or Vegas yeah. or England. I think that you're right. And that, that was actually kind of one of the uh, one of the limitations to the study was that it was a uh, although I think that it was more diverse than we'd expected they still had to include in there that you know their experiences may be different so you're right on Caitlin. What about some tips, helpful family Ooh. tips for people you know, my in recovery? Thing in the world. What? Yeah, tips. My favorite. No, <laughs> my favorite. Thing in the world is to sit down and tell. Tell people to sit what to down do. And give tips on mm-hmm. what to do. Right. My second favorite thing to do is to be right. I yeah. Rarely ever that. <laughs> False. <laughs> I really get to be right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. It's a good thing to ask. Why? What was it? Well, what's a tip that you would tell a family with a sexual minority that's child? That's what I was gonna ask. Yeah, uh, I, have, I, have I have my own, I have my own tips for so, them. So, Cody's gonna say something much more wait, lovely. Wait, focus. Sorry. Say it clearly again. What is something you would share with a family or parents? who have a child that identifies as a sexual minority. Yeah, I would say, and I'm glad that you asked that, um, because I think I like saying what I'm going to say. It's one of my favorite things to do is to tell people what to do. So, um, no, a tip in all good nature. I think that it's okay for parents to know that it's, um, it's okay if they're not okay at first with it. That's just something that we don't really ever get to talk about. That's something that's taboo. You know, we're in a society now, thank goodness, that acceptance and affirmation is the goal. And that is great. I would have it no other way. I think that as as a therapist, though, I can have compassion for those families who love their children, uh, but have a difficult time wrapping their head around what that means to have a gay child or um, a non-binary child. And so I would say that, first of all, it's okay that you're that you might struggle with that at first. And I think that it is important to align with the love that you have for your child to ditch the expectations and to open yourself up to who they are because they want to show you, they want to tell you, they want your um, acceptance, uh, whether they say so or not. And um, I would just say to open yourself up to what they want to show you and ditch what you're afraid it means um, because those fears and those anxieties and those expectations will get in the way of you being able to truly accept and love your child. And if that is your value, then be sure that your behaviors match making that so. Cody, that was the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. So beautiful. Also, something you could take the exact same thing that you just said for parents yeah, with a child absolutely. that's a sexual minority and place it to or apply it to, yeah, to parents mm-hmm. with a child living with an addiction. And it's the same thing. You're exactly right. The way we go about that, my, my tips are the same thing, yes. Mm-hmm. What would some of the risks be for a parent who does not accept their child? Mm. 
they're going to miss out on that child. Yeah, some, yeah. I've had I've had some family or some parents in session that were absolutely not a not in a place at that moment that they could be accepting. They were not a fan, and as a, they were not a fan mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And uh, as a therapist, as a human being, I have a hard time with that. As a therapist, I've been trained to respect people's journey. And so I can, I can do that. that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I have compassion towards that journey. I have kindness towards that journey. Um, as a human being, you know, it's not exactly maybe what I would do, but uh, as a person who's trained to help people on their journey, I can work with that. So the thing that they risked, they miss out on their child. Every single day they miss out on their child. Their child is an amazing human being who has talent uh, and who has skills that are far beyond what that parent could ever imagine. Um, and, and they have things that would indeed make that parent proud and to pass on things that are important to families and not accepting their child. I, I believe the words they used were, my daughter is always allowed at my house. I love my daughter. Uh, if anything were to happen, I would drive to my daughter and I would help her. However, my daughter's identity as a lesbian is not my daughter. That lesbian is not my daughter. I would not help that lesbian. And if she continues to choose to be a lesbian, I will not be a part of it. Does it it ever make you want to just shake them and be like, it's just gay. It's not that big of a deal. (laughs) Right. You know, internally as a human being, my human wants to come out and do that for sure, for sure. Uh, But as a clinician, you know, I'm called to do something different. That, so, you know, that person is wanting me to be helped. No, you're yeah. fine. That's I love that you speak to that, Chris, because it's mm-hmm. it, it's true. And any therapist that tells you that that doesn't exist is a liar. Right. Yeah, you should see Cody uh, and I do therapy. Or <laughs> I'm crawling out of my chair getting ready to I mean, it, I'm just like, saying, easy. especially in 2019, it just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I don't know how you can still just be like, oh, it's not my dad. Mm-hmm. Shut up. Right. No. Shut up. I know. Some people really, I mean, people have struggles of all different kinds. And this person really it's did, true. you know, and. My compassion to them, there was a whole lot of things that informed that kind of rigidity. Uh, a lot You're of just pain. a nicer person than me is what's going on. <laughs> well, I was, I got to see it. If you saw it too, your human would come out and see it. But uh, anyway, they, that person is going to miss out on their daughter. The amazing mm-hmm. person that I know that daughter is. I don't know their daughter. I just know that about every human being. Uh, you know, it's, I agree with Mr. Rogers. You do not have to do anything in the world to ever deserve to be loved or to love. And that is just absolutely true. And so, I mean, I think that if we can just all be kinder to each other and accept each other uh, for who we are and be open to that, to what it could teach us, then um, we could all love a whole lot easier. So true, Cody. So um, the last thing I want to say uh, is something that I say to all of my clients. I say it to my trans clients, my non-binary clients, my sexual minority clients, uh, and that includes all the letters, I hope. I want to include everybody. It's very important to me. I tell them during their significant, unique struggle, um, some of which I cannot personally relate to. You know, they're in the middle of uh, a lot of uh, pain and they're in the middle of a lot of self-doubt and uh, self-esteem is just, you know, in the lowest of lows. And uh, this is affecting their hope. And uh, addiction would be similar in that way, I think. You know, people, there's a lot of things that go along with addiction, a lot of pain, a lot of shame. And uh, so hope can also be very, very low there. It is Mm -hmm. very low there. So at that moment, I I try to make it a point, and I firmly believe this, that you will get a gift. 
Um, when you have to struggle, anybody in this world, if we have to struggle in a unique way that other people in this world don't, the way that we grew up, if we have to struggle and face adversity in a unique way that other, the majority of people maybe don't have to struggle with, if we can get through it, and we can, I promise, when we do, you will receive a gift for your struggles. Because of what you had to go through, you develop unique skills that other people don't have to because they didn't go through it. And those unique skills will inform your family. They will inform you. But the trick is you got to get through it. You have to deal with it. Otherwise, the things you learn will become your curse. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we get through it, you will get a gift that other people don't. My favorite people in the world, to give you some examples, my favorite people in the world are people in recovery from addiction because they are the sharpest people that I've met in terms of uh, social awareness. You know, as a therapist, I'm very social aware. As a person who grew up uh, in the way that I did, I'm very social aware. Uh, I try to be very self-aware, but I do not hold a candle to someone who is in good recovery, good long-term recovery. They know when someone is lying, mm -hmm. and that is almost impossible to detect. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of studies that show that, but I guarantee you, if you have someone in good recovery, uh, some of my family being some of them, they can tell when a person is lying. They can read a person almost supernaturally. Mm -hmm. And that is a gift. I don't care who you are. But if that person didn't receive recovery, that would have been a curse because they would have used that to manipulate and they would have used that to the addiction would have used that to forward itself in an um, awful, awful way to create pain for everybody. Mm -hmm. So we have to get through our struggles in order to use these things as a gift. And I promise there's a gift at the end of the road if you're struggling. With great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I almost cried, Cody. I love I listening know you did, to you. Sarah. I know. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> You're welcome. You, 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 uh, you have a whole lot to do with how I see the world, so I appreciate you. No, I'm really going to cry. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, oh, man. I really miss you, Cody. I miss you too very much, sir. Well, thank you coming on yeah well thanks for having me um i appreciate you giving me a time to talk it's it beautiful you sounded so smart you are smart you're so smart <laughs> and caitlin and chris oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 you can find blog posts from dr cody heath at www.fearlesskind.com and we will include all this information in the show notes on the Recover Everything podcast, which is recovereverything.com. Okay, now here's my ridiculous question. Okay. Yeah. Who would you have play gay Superman? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot. Gay Superman. <sighs> I thought we decided it was Batman. Gay Batman. Yeah, who would play gay Batman? It's very different, Co guys. Cody's like, Batman's me. I would play gay Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I'll play gay Batman. Um, that's a good one. Let me think of his name. Um, Oh my God! An Alfred ben could be Stiller, a major uh, babe. Uh, ben Stiller, no. Oh my God! No, not Ben Stiller. <laughs> ben Affleck, duh. Oh, Ben Affleck. Still, he, he's yeah, already he playing it. gay Batman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, he nailed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have it no other way. Can so, I, I leave this in, please? Subscribe to us on all the major streaming platforms. Uh, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, 
all that goodness and send us a story reach out to us talk to us we really would like some feedback and just to kind of meet and talk to our new audience 